Amen. Take up your Bible, if you will. We'll turn now to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. I'll read this portion of Scripture for us. I spent some time this morning uh, looking up how to pronounce some of these words, and I'm going to forget that time. So bear with me with some of the uh, names that we might have before us and uh, some of the odd ways I might pronounce them. Take with what I say with a grain of salt. It is the word of God, but my pronunciation is not. Acts chapter 12, verse 25. This is found on page 921 of your pew Bible, if you are using that. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, beginning in verse 25, and we'll read through verse 12 of chapter 13. Hear now God's word. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as, far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alumas, the magician, but that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Pray now with me. Father, we come before you and thank you for this word. Father, I plead with you now that you would use me, a marred servant, and yet one that you have called to preach your word. Father, would you bring this word to bear upon our souls in power. Father, there is nothing that I can say, there's no illustration that I can give, an application that I might offer that can do justice to the glory of your written word. And so we would plead this morning, and the Holy Spirit would plant this word deep in our hearts and fashion us in your likeness as we've sung about now, this past song. Father, what a joy it is to be able to open the word with one another. Help us now as we apply ourselves to it. In the precious and holy name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, we find ourselves continuing our study in the book of Acts. We have reached the middle, if you will, of the book. 
this middle is not by way of chapters. There's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, so we haven't quite reached the middle in terms of number, but we have reached the middle in terms of narrative, meaning as the story is being told of the growth of the church by the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, we have reached the middle point. Uh, it might help you in studying the book of Acts, maybe in reading it in preparation uh, for our time of worship together to recognize that the narrative breaks at chapter 12 and verse 13. If you will, verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 1 through chapter 12, uh, you might think about as the church going from Jerusalem to Antioch. And chapter 13 through 28, you can think of as the church going from Antioch all the way to Rome, the center of the known world at that time. And we have, we have our, our text this morning before us, and it is packed, uh, chock full of important things for us to understand about the church, about missionaries, about what it is to send, about the power of the Holy Spirit, about the, the beauty of the gospel, about the uh, word of God and its importance, and, and how, when it is resisted, what takes place. Uh, we're going to see Paul, which we will now recognize, and I'm grateful for the ability to say Paul, and I have to constantly correct myself from here going forward. Rather than say Saul, we'll see Paul. Uh, give a, maybe at least to this point in Acts, the clearest of words to a false teacher. Uh, he, he minces no words due to the opposition this man gives to the gospel. If you've been with us some, for some time, uh, you might recall and I'll remind us that what we have seen all the way through the back of Acts and we will continue to see is we see the growth of the church, we see the advance of the church and then we see opposition and that opposition in our minds might stay the growth of the church and rather God uses it to spread the church and grow the church even more, even amidst the persecution. And we will see opposition to the church yet again, even this morning. Verse 25 of chapter 12 and carried on through uh, verse 3, if you will, of 13 is really a, a setting up of what is taking place in 4 through 12, but there's important things for us that have entitled this first point, set apart for the ministry. Set apart for the ministry, verse 25 of chapter 12 through 3 of 13. Notice we have Barnabas and Saul who are back on scene. Uh, they took a time in the shadows, if you will, in the narrative, and we had Peter in chapter 12 but if we remind ourselves, go back to verse 30 of chapter 11, uh, we will see that there was a, 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 sin, a sending of famine relief by the way of Paul, excuse me, Saul and Barnabas to the church in Judea. And they found their way all the way to Jerusalem. Verse 30 of chapter 11, and they did so sending famine relief to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. We had this situation going on with Peter. We may have even had the persecution of James that we noted last week, putting him to death by sword. We, we may have had all of these things actually take place 
with Barnabas and Saul in Jerusalem. We don't know for sure. Either way, they have delivered their care package and now they have returned to Antioch and they're returning with a protege, a young disciple by the way of John Mark. Now, we were introduced to him last week. I didn't speak much about him, but if you look up in verse 12 of chapter 12, you'll see the mother of John whose other name was Mark. Uh, This is the household by which a prayer meeting was gathering when Peter is brought out divinely from prison. John Mark is apparently in this home and he finds his way back to Antioch with Barnabas and Saul. And let me just mention a few things that we'll talk more about in coming weeks about John Mark. But John Mark, you need to know this. He starts well, he trips up in the middle, and he finishes well. Starts well, trips up in the middle, and he finishes well. We can find a lot of similarity with us within the church with John Mark. There's more John Marks in the church than probably any other uh, person represented in the New Testament. Those who start well, trip up in the middle, and finish well. I think every one of us could say we've had a John Mark type of situation in life, and all of us are hoping, by the grace of God and trusting in that grace, that we will find ourselves finishing well. But John Mark here is attaching himself to, or has attached himself, been brought in to this intimate group of Barnabas and Saul. He's going out on this missionary journey. He seems uh, quite a man, a young man of zeal, uh, wanting to serve the Lord. He's used by the Lord, and we'll look at some of the trip-ups later. But you must know he finishes quite well. Most historians credit him with the writing of the Gospel of Mark. Now, they find themselves back at the church of Antioch. This is verse 1 of chapter 13. And there we have some prophets and teachers. And there are five that are mentioned, but let me just say that much consternation has been uh, offered to the church over the years of what to do with the work and office of a prophet or a teacher. So questions like this are asked. Are there still prophets today? Was the office of a prophet only an office for the early church? Is that office gone now? Is the gifting of prophecy as described in 1 Corinthians 12, is it no longer in effect? And I don't want to add to the consternation, but I do want to say this, that I think more is made about the word prophet and not enough about the work of prophet. And what I mean by that is this. Prophets are those who declare under divine authority the word of God. Prophets are those who declare under divine authority the word of God. Teaching is oftentimes how prophets would carry out their work. Now, are there those who have the gift of teaching? Surely. But you have to recognize that a man called by God, we would call him a pastor, Declaring the word of God is in effect doing a work of prophetic ministry. I'm simply declaring to you the word of God. Uh, I've not spent my time in study this week, hopefully, and hopefully you're praying I'm not spending my time in study thinking about what word do these people need to know from me? No, it is what word from God must they know. We can split hairs on the issues here, but it is clear that the preaching of the word of God has a prophetic work. And there are five prophets slash teachers that are mentioned. We've read them, but by way of reminder, Barnabas, 
Simeon, uh, who they also called Niger. Uh, that, is, that means black. He probably was from Africa. Lucius was also probably from Africa. Manaen, I pronounced it differently in the first, so now you can decide whether my first pronunciation was right compared to my second. Manaen, who grew up with Herod Antipas. Uh, he was a boyhood companion. He was a friend of Herod Antipas. Who's Herod Antipas? Well, he was the man who reigned in Galilee during the ministry of Christ. Grows up with him. His nephew is the one that we saw eaten by worms last week. Notice these are there in the church and they're worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now I want to mention to you this Greek word worshiping. It's liturgeo, liturgeo. Maybe if you hear that word in your brain, it might spark uh, an English word that we know and even use. Liturgeo means to worship, and it's where we get the word liturgy. Liturgy. What we're doing is, in liturgy, is a form of worship. And ultimately, what we're doing is we're, we're seeking to form a worship service to minister to God. That is what it is to give him glory. We're simply spending time each Sunday morning uh, forming a time together to minister ultimately to God and then oftentimes we get the overflow and we're ministered to as well. But this is what they're doing. Uh, and this is why we would say every church has a liturgy because every church that seeks to worship God that's what they're doing. That's the Greek word for worship there or minister. And we think it's wise here at FCF, that's why you have a bulletin, to, to place before you the form of that which we're flowing through in order to worship and glorify God. And so we, we think it's wise to the best we can to f form those thoughts to connect how does what we praise God for at the beginning of our service connect to the preaching of the word? How does what we confess in sin connect to the preaching of the word? How does our song of response at the end connect to the word of God? We're just forming these things together. Human form, it's not inspired the, the order of our service by any shape or form. But it hopefully is helpful for us as we seek to minister glory to God. These ordinary means of grace is all that they were doing. They were worshiping and fasting. And the Holy Spirit somehow indicates to Barn that Barnabas and Saul are to be set aside for a special work, that being the call to take the gospel to Asia Minor. And it's important to note here, this is why we say there are churches that are sending churches. We're a sending church. That's what a ascending church sends out missionaries. It's a biblical concept. We've sent out two missionaries uh, in the past couple of years, Mark and Sharon Welch, Evan and Rachel Took. We recognized their call by the Holy Spirit to do a specific work in a specific place with a specific gifting, and we sent them to do that. And notice how these were sent and how we even, in following Scripture, sent our missionaries well. They prayed over them. Acts chapter 6, verse 6. We see this where the church prayed over the deacons before commissioning them to their work. We don't need to get um, 
all fancy about is there power in the laying on of hands. It's not described in that way, shape, or form here. What his meaning is the laying on of hands in prayer, whether it's of deacons or whether it's of elders or pastors or missionaries, all that is is it's a physical indication that the church that is laying on of hands here believes that the Holy Spirit has called these specific people for a specific work and they're called by the Holy Spirit to do that work and not a man. So we we hope and pray that we'll have elders soon. When we lay our hands on them, what we're saying is, remember brothers, we haven't chosen you for this work. The Holy Spirit has divinely called you to this work. We want to remind you, we're almost putting our hands to take our hands off, in a sense. We're we're recognizing that this is not a work of man. This is a work of God, and you must serve him before God. So we, we, we we would seek to encourage our missionaries. But one of the things we're encouraging them with, as we would encourage a couple that might stand here and declare to us their wedding vows, is we witnessed your calling and commitment to the work of God before you. Stay strong to that. Stay true to that. Hold fast to that. This is more than just, hey, I had an inkling. I wanted to. I I thought it would be exciting. Oh, no, no, no. This is a calling by the Holy Spirit. How do we do that today? Well, I've already mentioned it uh, in brief, but I'll mention it by way of organized thought. We can identify the work the Holy Spirit calls someone to do in the sense of missions or pastoral work in three different ways. And I would give those three different ways by point of emphasis from 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can go study that. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're told we should identify is there a desire? Is there a desire on the part of this person to do a work? He often desired to do the work of elder, for instance, or we can apply here missionary deacon we should identify the gifting are they gifted toward this can they teach can they preach we often identify their eligibility scripture provides for us uh, clear indication of when a man uh, specifically for the office of elder or deacon is eligible or ineligible for that office those aren't light matters And I take the office of elder and pastor to be held right across the board with missionaries. So when we test whether or not a missionary is eligible to go out into the field, we're not saying, okay, you're going to, you've got a a, a lower standard you can meet. No, they're ministering the word of God as a pastor should, and therefore that eligibility defined according to scripture is the one they should meet as well. Well, they send these two off. Let's look at this next point. And here we might find the meat of our narrative this morning. Point number two, opposition for the ministry. And this is verse 13, chapter four. Verse, few verses there, four through five, our context for verse six. They're being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They come to Seleucia, this is the first of three missionary journeys for, for Paul. This is to Asia Minor. Uh, many would connect this with A.D. 46 or 47. Seleucia is 16 miles south of Antioch. So they leave Antioch, they go south. They're on land. 
And from then, from there, they go over to Cyprus. Well, Cyprus is an island west of Seleucia, out in the Mediterranean Ocean. So they go south, and then they go west. And when they land on this island of Cyprus, which is the home of Barnabas, they come to the first city, which is on the east side of the island. And that is the, island, that is the city of Paphos. You see that verse 6. And then they travel all the way across the island. And by the time we get to verse 6, they're all the way on the west side of the island, which is Paphos. So Paphos is on the west. Salamis, excuse me, is on the east side. That may be helpful for you. It may not be. But there's the geography of it. What we have to note is verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the words of God, is making it very clear from God that the church is led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit speaks. Verse 4, the Holy Spirit sends. Verse 9, the Holy Spirit fills. Specifically Paul there. The church is the body of Christ who bear the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Christ builds and sustains his church and the Holy Spirit plays an active part in helping, guiding, and empowering those within Christ's bride. The church is not the church absent the Holy Spirit. It's a gathering, it's a group of people, but the presence of the Holy Spirit within the Christian is the mark and sign of those who've been saved by Christ and the gathering of that body of Jesus Christ, then guided and led and helped by the Holy Spirit, we call that the church. And there's many things that take place in the church. But we recognize, we must recognize that the Holy Spirit is led, leads, excuse me, the church. The Holy Spirit leads the church. Now, verse 5 is just absolutely packed, and we won't spend all of our time as much as I would like, but I want to point out to you three different things that are very, very clear in verse 5 for us. First of all, they proclaimed the word of God. They proclaimed the word of God. This missionary journey, they got to Salamis, and they proclaimed the word of God. They don't get to Salamis and say, okay, let's, I don't know what you would do. I don't know what might be offered in terms of figuring out what to say or not to say or how to interact with these people. All they do is they get there and they proclaim the word of God. It is Spurgeon who who said it a number of times, at least three that has been noted, that the word of God is like a lion. If you have a lion in a cage, he says, and you have an army coming at the lion, You don't have a group of people that surround the lion and hold up their swords and fight the army off to defend the lion. All you do is you simply just open the door of the cage and let the lion do his work. The lion is well equipped to defend himself. The word of God unleashed, just proclaimed as it is, unadulterated, not twisted or defined, according to what man might desire, but just proclaimed as it is, does its work. And it does its work quite well. They proclaim the word, the centrality of the ministry of the word in church growth. I I would love to see one day every pew in here stacked left to right with people who want to hear the word of God. And I know many of you do, if not all of you want to see that. 
We might be termed at that point a mega church in Fredericksburg, and some of us might not like that. But we would all want to hear everyone hear the word of God. I can tell you right now, if that, by God's grace, is going to happen and sustain for 20, 30, 50, 150, 300, 500, 1,000 years until Christ returns, it's not going to be because we have a better sign or a better website. Hear me clearly. We could use a better sign and website. But that's not what builds the church. The ministry of the word has to be the central growth, the central means of the growth of the church. The right preaching of the word So that is always that which we focus on in our worship and that which we pursue to get better and better at. And then finally in verse five, I want you to see that they go to the synagogues of the Jews. Uh, They go to the place where conversation was taking place about religion. These people, these Jews respected the Old Testament as the word of God and there they would begin their process of evangelism. And it's well applied to us in our modern day. I don't suggest you just walk into another church this morning and (laughs) start in on evangelistic opportunities. But I do think the application is strong that evangelism begins as a good starting point with a conversation about what another thinks or knows about God. That's a great place. That's where evangelism starts. What does this person know about God? What do they think about Jesus Christ? Have they ever heard of Jesus Christ? What do they think about their sin? What do they do? They think what they've done is sin. That's where evangelism starts in these simple conversations, and it flows from there. The title of our sermon was "Opposition to the Word," ministry of the Word, and here we finally get to that opposition in verse 6 and following. There's this certain magician. Uh, You've got to kind of, in this entirety of our narrative this morning, follow the names because it seems to be everybody's got a number of names. This one does as well. Elumas, or Bargesus. He's a false prophet. He's a, a, a magician. And he's attached himself because that's often what took place like Pharaoh in the Old Testament who had magicians that uh, competed, if you will, with Moses. These, uh, those in leadership at that time would often have those who would seemingly or try to tap into the spirit world and they've got this man, this proconsul does, Sergius Paulus. Uh, note he is, a, he is not a, uh, a stupid man He's a man of intelligence. Alumas has attached himself to him. Uh, he's giving him word. The proconsul, which was the highest ranking Roman official in a Roman senatorial province, hears of the work that Barnabas and Saul are doing, asks him to come, deliver the word to me. I'd like to hear what you're saying. And there's this showdown, if you will. There's a a standoff that seemingly takes place in the presence of this proconsul. Um, I'm not sure that w- we could accurately uh, portray the the intensity of this moment. Um, probably the closest thing we've seen in some time on a worldwide scale is the is the meeting of the president of the United States uh, with the dictator of North Korea. That was a tense moment. There's a lot of tension in this room between this high-ranking Roman official, his 
confidant, if you will, the one who he's getting counsel from, and Paul, and all that Paul is, all that Paul has done against the church, all that Paul has been doing for the church, all of Paul's education, there is quite the meeting of the minds here. And notice what a false prophet always does. Verse 8. A false prophet always seeks to turn others away from the sound faith. That's what false prophets do. Always seek to turn others away from the sound faith. He's opposing Saul and Barnabas. Is he opposing Saul and Barnabas? No, not at all. He's opposing Christ. Remember when Saul is on the road and on the road he gets a vision of glory and his eyes are open to the glory of Christ and what do we hear? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting the body of Christ and yet Christ always claims whatever happens to his bride as personal to him. He protects his bride. And here is the same thing. He's opposing, he thinks he's opposing Saul and Barnabas, but ultimately what he's opposing is Christ and the sound word of Christ. Saul then, filled with the Holy Spirit, we have the transition there in verse nine. Now no longer Saul, but Paul. The Hebrew Saul is now the Roman Paul. Hebrew word, Saul, Roman Paul. And he confronts this man. He confronts him intentionally and he confronts him intensely. That's what it says, isn't it? He looked intently at him. I think we've all been in a situation with an authority or with another where that person bored his, that person bored their eyes into me and I thought, they're trying to tell me something. And that's exactly what takes place here. Paul says very clearly, and I don't think he whispered this. That's not Paul's nature. I don't think he shouted it either. But he does say very clearly, you son of the devil, you enemy of all, in, of, of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Listen, we've got to be very clear on this. That is hate speech. Now, it is not, but that's what the world would say, does it not? You're offending that man, Paul. Be kind to the guy. Surely you could speak kinder words. Surely, Paul, you could understand that he's just doing what he he knows to do, and and Paul, you, you should try to befriend him first. Listen, Paul... And the word of God have very little patience with those who proclaim any word other than the word of God. I I recommend that you go uh, read online how John Piper deals with uh, anyone of a cult that would come to his front door. Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, etc. They come to his front door. Go read how he deals with it. It's a lot like this. Well, John, be nice. Be kind. They're leading people to hell. That's what it is to say any other word than the word of God. Any other way than the word of Christ is going to hell. 
This is a life and death matter for Paul. He's not afraid to potentially offend one for the sake of an entire island knowing and understanding that there's a way of truth and there's a way that is false. Matthew 7, verse 15. Let me read it for you. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I've never seen a wolf in person, maybe the zoo or something. You can go watch National Geographic online. You can see what a wolf does to his sheep. It's not polite. It's not kind. It's not sweet. It's bloody. It's deadly. That's what false prophets do. They rip the souls of people apart and twist them in all shapes and forms. If I'm not clear enough, brothers and sisters, it should be that which is serious to us that the word of God is preached correctly. It should be that which is serious when we drive down the road and we see a Jehovah's Witness stand or a Mormon stand or someone who's promoting Catholicism. Any other religion, any other way than through Jesus Christ is deadly. And it should be taken extremely seriously. Go with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. It's to the left in your Bible. Not a, but a few page over, pages over, you'll find Matthew chapter 13. I want you to go there. I'm going to read for you a parable that Christ gave. And you might see the similarity, as I trust you will, between how Christ refers to some in this parable and what Paul tells this false prophet in Acts chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, pick up with me at verse 24. This is the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds, sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to master, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 36 Skip on down to verse 36. He gives the interpretation. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Notice, you son of the devil, the weeds are the sons of the evil ones. And the enemy who sowed them is the harvest. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Find your way back over to Acts chapter 13 and you can see that what Paul is saying in verse 10 is no more and no less than what Christ said in Matthew 13. You son of the devil and if you're a son you do what your father does and your father is the enemy of all righteousness full of all deceit and villainy. He's simply articulating to him the true nature of his soul and what he's doing. 
Now we see the result of what takes place in this confrontation. The hand of the, nip, uh, of the omnipotent God is upon this man. The hand that is unlimited in power falls upon this person. Paul declares, you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately it was so. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, write it down. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Unless those hands bear you up because of the work of Christ. And then there are hands that are no more comfortable and no more caring and no more loving. Paul was made blind by the glory of Christ. Elumas by the judgment of Christ. And there in verse 11 we see a picture of what it is to be hardened against God. To be in sin and not looking to Christ. Look at it, verse 11. He went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Is that not what happens in our sin, in our unbelief? Where can I find God? Wander around, holding hands out. Oh, maybe this person has it. Oh, let me try this over here. I'll try that way. I'll try this way. I'll try that religion. Oh, I'll try this feeling. It's just blind people wandering around, leading blind people till the glory of Christ appears in their hearts and their eyes are opened and they see Christ and they recognize that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then their hands are not held to another. Their hands are held out and says, to God through Christ am I made right before you. Brothers and sisters, miracles are used by God to bring unbelievers to fight, unbelievers to believe in Christ by authenticating the message and power of the word of God and that's it exactly takes place there in verse 12. That's what takes place in the New Testament. We have this proconsul who believed and he saw what he had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I want to close with uh, something I, I hope and if, if you haven't, maybe after today, this afternoon, you might spend some time uh, looking up a story that took place this past week. I want to connect that story to what we see here in our passage. The story is of Brant Jean, and some of you probably have seen the video. Uh, Brant Jean had his brother killed uh, by an off-duty police officer, it's all over the news, up in Dallas. Uh, A woman police officer came in to his apartment thinking it was hers, and she shot him and she killed him. And as the story goes, it's all over the news, as said, uh, the jury did their work and they gave opportunity for the family to give testimony to the impact of their brother's death upon their life. And Brant, who is 18 years old, had a moment to speak and I recommend it to you. It's probably the most powerful of gospel witness that I've seen in some time because he gives uh, glory to Christ. He calls this woman to trust Christ. He declares to her that he forgives her. He recognizes that uh, what she did is wrong, but he also seeks uh, to let her know that what she ultimately needs is Christ and that he bears no ill will against her. I'm, I'm condensing this down. And then he does something that has been both lauded and condemned and he asks in an unprecedented manner 
to the judge to allow him to give the woman whom kill, who killed her, his brother a hug. Uh, he pleads for the judge to do so and he goes and does and they embrace for a minute plus. She's sobbing. It is immensely powerful. Now, I think it's wonderful by God that this took place in a courtroom. This took place with a judge. This took place with a person who had been condemned rightly for what they had done wrong. And this took place with a man who forgave this woman. In a world of the United States of America where we may be more uh, racism may be more prevalent than ever before to see a black man forgive a white woman with a black judge. Nobody knows what to do with that because it's the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I recommend you go watch it. But let me just state to you that as powerful as an, as an image as it is of the work of forgiveness and of the power of the gospel, it is Nothing, nothing, can I repeat again? Nothing compared to the heavenly courtroom of Christ seated there giving witness to someone who has murdered, hated, sinned against him on a constant basis. That's us who says not only I love and forgive, but I want the 10-year sentence that that woman deserves. So this is a wonderful gospel picture. But brothers and sisters, this is nothing compared to what Jesus Christ has done for us. This is the power. That gospel, that good news is the power that transforms this pro-council. Not a man walking around blind. Hear it correctly. It's the power of God through Christ to save people who should be dead. That's what Christ does. That's what we call Justification if you want to think of a big word, where Christ is there and says, I will take the punishment for sinners and the judge says, I will allow the punishment to be placed upon you upon her behalf. I don't know where you are today with Jesus Christ, but let me tell you, you have every, you have every reason to know and believe that if you trust Jesus Christ from your sin, the judge of the world the God of glory has stated it is no more that your punishment is to be laid upon you. It has been laid upon Christ and will never be removed from Christ. He took the punishment and he served the punishment and it's over. So if you're here today and you know Christ, you've got to understand that when Satan tempts you to despair this week, you've got to look upwards to Christ and see him there who took an end to all your sin. Can I convey it more powerfully? I, I wish. Take your children. Take your wife. Find yourself alone if you need to. Watch the story, but watch it. Watch it to point you back to Scripture and recognize that Christ did way more has done way more for us it is this power it is this ministry of the word that overcomes hardened hearts that overcomes sinful creatures like you and I that gives us eyes to see that saves us from our sin and this is why we proclaim 
the ministry. This is why the centrality of FCF must always be the ministry of the word. Because that's the only thing that has the power to do that. I think trail life is a great opportunity. I think women's Bible studies are a good thing. I think uh, outreach to the jail is wonderful. But nothing if not centered on the ministry of the word of God. That alone has the power to change. And I trust by, your, by his grace, uh, if he has changed you, you recognize that and can ascribe all glory to him. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you uh, for pictures before us, whether of modern day with Mr. Gene or ancient day in the word of God with this pro-counsel and false prophet. Father, you are very kind to us to in many, many unique ways show us the glory of the power of the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves us from all of our sin. A power that is much deeper than blind eyes or healed bodies, but a power that is of an eternal nature that can heal the soul forever and ever and ever and ever. Father, many of us today might struggle or be downhearted, cast down by the the physical suffering we may go under, but may we recognize what we've been given is a healing beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. A gift, one of grace, where our sins have been removed. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the power of the ministry of the word of God. May you provide for us the grace to always keep that the central ministry of our church. Give us very sensitive and discerning eyes to see when we may wander away from that. It is very clear, Father, that you are very concerned and very delighted in when the ministry of the word is correct according to your word and very concerned when it is false. May we always hold up the word in an unadulterated fashion. Father, we now move to another means of grace and that is the Lord's Supper. A uniting of the church around a table to declare that Christ not only is seated at the head of the table but he paid for the meal and he paid for it with his blood. He, in fact, laid down his life. His body was broken. His blood was spilt in order that we may have life. We submit ourselves to this means of grace and we trust that you will help us as we give ourselves to it. In the precious and holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen.